All right, as we come today to Acts chapter 9, uh, just like the last chapter, this chapter presents a major turning point, not only the, in the book of Acts, but a major turning point in the history of the Christian faith. This chapter, of course, if you've read it, and you should know it, if you haven't read it, stop this podcast and go read it and then come back. This chapter recounts and describes the events surrounding the conversion of Saul, um, or Paul, who would become the greatest missionary the church has ever known. So let's uh, consider some things we can learn from the story. So let's just think about his conversion first. As we said, that's the, this is not only the major turning point in the book of Acts, but of the whole Christian faith. It's interesting how this chapter begins by stating that Saul, or Paul, in verse 1, was, quote, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He was literally seeking the proper authority and paperwork to go from town to town in order to carry out his murderous threats against those who profess faith in Jesus, verse 2. It was on his way to Damascus with this intent and purpose that the Lord blinded him with a light from heaven and spoke to him in an audible voice. The Lord in that moment delivered him from his old life and awakened him to new life in Christ. And while the individual circumstances of our salvation do not look like those of the Apostle Paul, the same basic structure is the same in in every conversion that ever has happened. It's not as if one day we wake up on our own and in our own power and in our own moral goodness decide that we are tired of this old life and go looking for new life in Jesus. Jesus himself says that is impossible. He said in John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And, uh, and he says in John 6, 65, that it must be granted by the Father. So to the contrary, G- G- just as uh, Paul was traveling down that murderous road with evil intent until the Lord sovereignly intervened to save him and change his desires from unrighteous to righteous, the same happens in our own hearts when he saves us. We are walking down our own sinfully chosen path walking away from the Lord and contrary to his will until he sovereignly intervened to bring us believingly to Jesus. And it may not have looked as dramatic as someone um, just you know, looking on our conversation as it was for Paul, but make no mistake, it was just as dramatic. It was completely of the Lord. Uh, let's, let's think secondly um, about this, that I love that when the Lord sovereignly saved Saul, and, uh, and changed his hate into love of Christ. He told Ananias to go and help Saul because, as he put it in verse 15, he is a chosen instrument of mine. And just consider the remarkable ways in which the Lord uh, uses Saul in this same chapter. I love the fact that it teaches us that the Lord doesn't save us without a purpose. He saves us with a purpose. And and, and, and individual purposes for each one of us. Furthermore, it teaches us that no matter how far away from the Lord we had been previously, and no matter how checkered our past has been, the Lord redeems fully from that and uses us anyway for his glory. That is the mercy of God. Just think long and hard about that truth and thank the Lord that he has a good purpose in saving you. And let's think finally about miracles. Miracles everywhere, miracles. There are... Um, <laughs> A lot of amazing miracles described in this um, chapter, uh, mainly through Peter rather than Paul at this point. Uh, Peter will be the main feature of the next chapter, but as the book continues after that, Saul or Paul will be uh, 
and his missionary journeys will be the main focus. But here, consider the miracles that are told. Peter heals a man who had been bedridden for, bedridden for eight years, verse 33. And uh, even more amazingly, in the town of Joppa, Peter raised uh, a lady named Tabitha from the dead, verses 36 to 43. Or I should say, through Peter, a lady named Tabitha was raised from the dead. Peter didn't do it in his own power. Um, well, what are we to make of all these miracles? Well, they seemingly appear on every page of Acts, and they, they seem so common in that day and so rare today by comparison. How should we think about that and understand it? Well, again, it's helpful to recall what we said in chapter 3 about miracles. There are only three main time periods in the Bible in which miracles are prominent. During the time of Moses and the Exodus out of Egypt, during the ministries of Elijah and Elisha, and then during the time of Jesus and the Apostles. What is noteworthy about those time periods is that each of them signified a major turning point in the history of redemption and salvation. Clearly, miracles were prominent during the time of Moses because of God's deliverance of his people out of bondage and slavery in Egypt under the leadership of Moses, which would prefigure the, the greater redemption coming through Jesus. Additionally, miracles were prominent during the time of Elijah and Elisha because they were prophesying during an idolatrous and rebellious time during the uh, northern kingdom of Israel. They were calling the people of God back to worship the true God in an effort to prevent the collapse of the kingdom. And finally, when God's greater deliverance and the true obedient king came in Jesus Christ, miracles abounded to herald his coming. And while God can still bring about the kind of miracles we see in the Bible, the way the kingdom moves forward now is predominantly through the preaching of the word. As Jesus himself said in Luke 16, 31, if they do not listen to, the Mo to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Miracles signaled the coming of his kingdom, preaching his word accompanied by the convicting and enlivening power of the Holy Spirit is enough now to advance his kingdom. Those are just a few thoughts from Acts chapter 9.